And I'm going to ask Rachel to come up and give us our word of encouragement for today. Um, while we were in lockdown uh, online and by telephone, we started up this little um, word of encouragement, and many people found it really encouraging. And so let's hear what the Lord has put on Rachel's heart for today. Good morning. Um, my encouragement in the last little while has come from a book, Moments for Families with Prodigals, by Robert J. Morgan. I have three adult children and their other halves and four grandchildren, and at times I agonise over their salvation. However, I took comfort from this. In a book, The Kneeling Christian, there is an observation from the upper room, about the upper room passages of John 13 to 16 that Jesus invites us seven times to ask for anything in his name. Jesus spoke just before his arrest and within 24 hours his cold body would rest in the tomb. He had precious little time to prepare his disciples in the upper room, yet seven times he promised them that God would answer their prayers. So I looked up these verses, and here are the seven promises from the NIV. One, I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. John 14, 13. Two, you must ask for anything in my name, and I will do it. 14, 14. Three, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. Four, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. 15, 16. <coughs> Five, in that day you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth. My Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. 16, 23. Six, until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. 16, 24. Seven, in that day you will ask in my name. The Father himself loves you. The message is to ask. On a personal note, my great-grandfather had a small holding in Suffolk in England and he, di he died behind his horse and plough. And when he didn't come home that day, his brother, whom my great-grandfather had prayed for for many years, was sent out to find out where he was. When he found his brother, he also found a memory verse. Sadly, I don't know what that verse was. But on that day, he gave his life to the Lord. Sadly, my great-grandfather didn't see the answers to his prayers, in his lifetime, although I'm sure there would have been great rejoicing in heaven that day. <coughs> the point is, as Ruth Graham Bell said, we must take care of the, po the possible and trust God for the impossible. We are to love, affirm, encourage, teach, listen and care for the physical needs of our families. We cannot convict of sin, create hunger and thirst after God, or convert. These are miracles, and miracles are not in our department. So love your children and grandchildren, and remember that the prayers that you make <coughs> have been heard 
by a faithful God. Do not fret, trust, feed on his faithfulness. Delight in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your child to the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently. I have never seen the righteous forsaken and his descendants the best. Do not fret, it only causes harm. And keep on asking. As we come today, let's turn to Colossians. We've been studying this book and I hope you found it practical as we get the principles from God's Word applied in everyday life. And as we go through now, the Apostle Paul's getting into the real nitty-gritty of how we apply these principles. And so today we're going to see how are we to change to be holy. And it's a story of two sets of clothes. And then next week we're going to meet around what does that look like in your home? What does it look like at work? What does it look like in society when we put on holiness? So that's next week. So let's just read through the passage for today. Colossians chapter 3, and I'm going to read from verse 1, but we'll look at verses 12 to 17 this morning. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. You've been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free. For Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through Him. 
Well, I said to you, it's a story of two sets of clothing. You see, the moment I was born again, my old nature was taken from me. But that's not the end of the story, you see, because I still sit with this earthly body, which is part of that old nature which I received. And so what the Bible calls me to is, it says, hang on, I first need to put it on before I take it off. Man, it stinks. It's my good old oil skin. The Bible says, when the Lord changes you, when you give your life to Him, he takes your old nature from you completely away. But it doesn't end there, you see, because we still have habits. We still have things we do. We still have thoughts we think, which are still part of that old nature. And what the Bible calls us to, to do in this passage this morning is to take off that old nature, the stinking old death clothes. The Bible says take them off. And it's a day-by-day day taking off. We can't live with these things. We've got a new nature. Oops. And what are we to do? The Bible calls us to put on the new nature. Now, we've been given a new nature because the moment we were reborn, the work of recreation was done in me. But... There's a day by day being made more holy, which means I've got to learn the good habits, the good ways of thinking, right? And those are the things I'm called to put on. Why am I emphasizing this? Because it's not a case of putting off your old nature and putting on a new nature as in inside of you. That's already been done for you. Christ took away your old nature and gave you a new nature. But it's those habits, those things attached to my old nature that I need to take off because they belong to this earth. And I need to put on the ways which are God-honoring. Is that clear enough? I couldn't find white. This will do. I've got to put on the new habits. This is actually quite good. Because if we put on the new habits in Jesus Christ, it'll shine out to the world. And we'll be visible to the world. So that's what this passage is basically all about. He's saying to us, put off the old grave clothes and put on the grace clothes. This new self... What's being done to this new self? We saw that last week in verse 12. The new self is the one that's being renewed in knowledge day by day. As I study God's word and take me, my habits and everything are being made new. And I'm being made to be more like my creator. Who is my creator? Jesus Christ. And also... As I put on these new habits and the effects of this new habit, sorry, the effects of this new nature, 
I transcend the boundaries that society might put on me. You see, society might say, you're from a specific religious background, you're from a specific ethnicity, ethnicity, social status, so that's the way you're to behave. But the Bible says, as we saw last week, in Christ, in the body, those things are done away with. We're in Christ. There is the center of our being. Nothing else matters. And that's why we can interact with each other. So that was last week. And then he says in verse 12, our identities as Christians are determined by Christ. Why? Because we are God's chosen ones. We are God's holy ones and we are God's beloved ones. Those are the three words. Look at verse 12. We are God's chosen ones. We are the holy ones of God. And we are beloved of God. Where have we seen those words together in that group? Anyone remember? Deuteronomy. I know it was a while back. But Deuteronomy used that very specific grouping of words. Deuteronomy chapter 7 Verse 6 to 7, this is what it said of Israel when God called Israel to himself. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 to 7, this is what he said. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the house of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. There's that same cluster of words. We are God's chosen ones. The Bible says, before there was time, God knew us. Before we were even created, God knew us and chose us. And then, when He saved us, He makes us holy. He makes us holy. Why? Because we are His beloved. He loves us. So it's not a new thing. It comes all the way from the beginning of God's plan for mankind. And therefore, He says, verses 12 to 14, put on love. In the light of what God has done for you and who you are, put on love. Why, says verse 14, because love binds everything together. So what does Christ's love in us look like? What are we to put on or cultivate and grow? And then he spells it out for us. Put on the following things. Grow the following things in your life. You see, when we're putting sin to death, remember my hammer? Don't mess around with sin in your life. Put it to death. But something must come in its place. You can't leave a vacuum there. Put to death sin. Put on the following characteristics. What are they? First one, compassion. Put on compassion. What is compassion? How did the Father forgive us? He had compassion on us. Where do we see this? Jesus on the cross. Luke chapter 23, verse 34. They just nailed Jesus to the cross and crucified him. And what does Jesus say? Looking down on those people. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
That's compassion. How are we to love each other? Have compassion. You see, it starts in the heart and the mind. The old Greeks called it bowel love. That's a literal translation. Have compassion. Love people from your bowels. I think my bowels are here. We don't say that today. You'd be weird if you said that. We say, love people from your heart. Love them from your heart. Show them the compassion and the love of Jesus Christ. It starts from inside you. And then it comes out in acts of what? Kindness. There's the next word. It comes out in acts of kindness. If you've got compassion for people, if you see people as Jesus sees people, then your acts will show in acts of kindness. It comes from the heart. Show them God's own goodness, which is in you. He carries on. He says, show you, put on humility. Now, in the world's eyes, humility is not a good thing, right? Humility is a sign of weakness, civility, cowardice. That's how it's always been seen. But the Bible says the opposite. It says, humility is a state of heart which values others above yourself. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 8 says, This is what Jesus did. He valued others above himself, made himself nothing on our behalf. And then... What comes from a state, a heart state of humility? Meekness. It's the practical application of humility. It's power in control used in the service of others. That's meekness. It's when you could get what you should get, but you don't because you won't. I'll repeat that. I hope I can repeat that. It's what you could get. What you would get, but you won't because... No, I forgot. <laughs> you don't insist on your rights, in other words. You could get what you should get coming to you, but you give it up for others. And it's because it started in your heart, and now it's an expression of your hands. Meekness. Humility in action. Not being overly impressed by a sense of your own importance. And then there's a next one, patience. Now, I, I was so wishing this one wouldn't be here, but it's here. Patience, bearing with one another. Now, I want to do a little quick test. When you hear the phrase, to, you must bear with one another, what's the first thing that comes to your head? Bear with one another. Come on. What's the first thing that comes to your head? I've got to tolerate people, right? I've got to bear with people. That's the way we interpret it today. But that's not what Scripture's saying. The way Scripture uses this word tolerate is to bear with others. Bearing. Bearing with one another. It's not a me-centered tolerate. It's a we-centered endure with each other. Yes, this person irritates me, but they are part of me with in this team, I must run together with them, and so I must endure with them. I must bear with them. Do you get it? 
It's a mutual bearing with each other. And how is that possible? I mean, look at us. We're all so different. Look at us. The next thing is how it's possible. Forgiving one another. You see, when that person really irritates you and everything they seem to do rubs you the wrong way, then bear with them and forgive them. They're running the race with you. Forgive them. How do we forgive them? Just as God forgave us. How did God forgive us? When we deserved no mercy at all. We were running away from God with our fists in the air, shouting rebellious words against Him. God turned us towards Him. He showed us grace. Nothing we did earned that grace. In actual fact, we earned His judgment. He showed us grace. And so when someone sins against you, me, show them grace. Like Christ showed you grace. gives you grace every single day. In other words, says the apostle, put on love in practice, not just in words. And he's told us what that love looks like. There it is. Love is compassionate, kind, humble, meek, and patient. Put these things on. These things are what goes with your new nature. Kill sin in you. Put on love. Why? Because then you will be made to be like the Son. You see, we can't do it ourselves. Who is doing this great work in us? The Holy Spirit is with us. God Himself is helping us to put on these qualities. We can't do it ourselves. The Lord has to keep on bringing patience back to me because every time it falls off the table again. And then he puts it on me again, and somehow I shed it again. But he carries on. He is the God who will turn me to himself. He puts patience on me again, and one day it sticks. Praise the Lord. So don't give up. If some of those qualities are not yet in you, and I can put up my hand, just keep on keeping on in the Lord. He will help you. To clothe yourself with your new nature. Don't give up. You will be made more holy. Why? Because he is the author and the finisher of your faith. Says the Apostle Paul. He will bring these things about in your life. And so when that person offends you, show them grace. Because Jesus shows you grace. Show them love. The love of Christ. So how is it possible to put on love? How is it all possible? The Spirit helps us, but it depends on who our focus is, right? If, you're not, if you haven't got the right focus, you're not going to be able to put on these new qualities. Who's your focus? Who's the focus in the text, verses 15 to 16? Jesus Christ. How do I know that? It says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let His word dwell richly in you. Whose is it? His love. His peace. His word. Christ is the focus, right? And it says here, verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule 
in your hearts. Now, if, in case you don't understand that, I've got another teaching aid for you. I'll give you a clue. Cricket. Did the old Greeks have cricket? No. They had athletics, though. And they also had umpires. And the umpire's job was to rule disparity and when people disagreed. He ran into my lane. No, he didn't. Call the umpire. And the umpire would say, I've looked at it, I've evaluated the case. He didn't run in your lane, so carry on. Or you're disqualified. But the rule of the umpire was final. That's what this word means. Let the peace of Christ umpire in your life. Through his word. As you read God's word, as you go through situations of difference in the church, let the peace of Christ umpire the situation. Look at God's word. What does it say? Let that be the final authority. Let it bring peace to the situation. God's word is final. Do you get what it says? Let the peace of Christ umpire in your lives. And so where you've got conflicts of interest, where your motives might differ from others, where you've got different reasons for doing things, the peace of Christ must step in and decide which is to prevail and so bring an end to that conflict in the church. Now, does that mean that we must have peace at all cost? Peace despite every principle? No. Do we have peace even at the, price of tr at the price of truth? No. You see, that can't, can't ever be. Why? Because if Christ brings the blessing of His peace into a situation, it will never be subject to untruth. Because that would go against His very character. Christ can never go against His own word. So we can't have peace at any cost. Whatever the world might call us to, whatever political leaders might call us to, bring peace between the different faiths. Come together in your commonalities and forget your diversities. That's what we're called to do. That's what church leaders worldwide are calling churches to do. Put the truth aside for the sake of peace. We can't do that. There are times when there can be no peace. How do we know that? Martin Luther was an example of this in Germany where he nailed his theses to the, to the saint's church door in 1517 to expose the errors of the current Roman church then. He couldn't go with the church. We can't absolve our differences with other faiths for the sake of peace. The Apostle Paul is speaking about the unity inside the church. That's what he's talking about. He says, when you have disunity among you, then let the peace of Christ rule there. But stand for the truth. So when we see sin in the church, we can't just put it out of our minds because we might bring disunity. We've got to stand on the truth. We can't let the peace of Christ rule in that situation. His truth says to us, stand for what is right. Then you will have peace. Otherwise you won't have peace. So Christ's peace makes it all possible. He makes 
his love in his church possible. And so the call from the Apostle Paul this morning is to let Christ's peace not just be in your heart, but to rule over your heart. And this is where you must listen. You see, when things start changing around us in our economy now, and it's going to come, all the signs are there. Let the peace of Christ rule over your heart. You see, we say we have the peace of Christ. It's in my heart, but I don't let it umpire my heart. Bring this to your minds so that when you see the wind and the waves around you, let the peace of Christ umpire rule over your heart. Otherwise, you will give in to panic and reacting as the world does around you. And if you do as individuals, because you make up this church, then as a body, there will be peace among us as well. And then he says, one short little sentence of three words, verse 15, and be thankful. There's a sermon all in that. Just be thankful. So when you have differences among you and the peace of Christ rules, be thankful. Be thankful. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. And then he says in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You see, there's two aspects here. If we want the love of Christ to be active in our body, if we want the unity in this body, then we need to allow the peace of Christ to rule over this body of believers. And we need to let the word of God dwell richly in us. I love that word. Let his word dwell richly in you. What is it? Literally, to pitch his tents and let the camels out to water. To, to stay there. And that means we've got to think through God's word and allow it to permeate right through our lives so that it makes its home in us. It means we must memorize his word. We're back there again, I'm sorry. We need to memorize his word. It becomes part of us then. And when life hits us, his word comes back to our hearts and brings us peace. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. May it find a home in your hearts as individuals and as individuals who make up the church body. Let the message that proclaims Christ be among you as a body, not just as you speak, but as you act towards each other. Let the peace of God and His Word dwell richly in you. What's the result of that? It breaks out into singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You see, if you see what Christ has done in your heart, you can't help it but break out into song. Now, I know some of you are going to disagree because you're going to say, I can't sing a note. It doesn't matter. Your heart is singing. We break out before the Lord in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I want to digress a little bit here. Some over the years have tried to bring disunity here by saying we only sing psalms what are psalms we find psalms in the bible right some have said no we don't sing psalms we read psalms we sing hymns that great men and women of god have 
created over the years. We sing hymns. And some say, oh no, those are too old-fashioned. We just sing songs of praise to God. It's true. Churches have split over this thing, man. How does the Bible use these terms? It uses them, wait for it, interchangeably. In other words, the Bible is saying, don't make a big deal of it. Let God's peace umpire over the music scene. And man, is it needed. And so we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Some have tried to say, well, psalms are written by God, hymns are written by people, and songs of... Spiritual songs, those are written by people about our reflections on how we reflect on God singing and God doing stuff in our lives, and they go off in all kinds of directions. No, it's too complicated. Be thankful to the Lord for everything He's done in the church, and it'll break out in you in song. Whether you can sing or not, your heart will praise God. Amen. So the Apostle Paul is saying, let there be unity inside the church body. And with thankfulness in your hearts to God, sing psalms of praise, hymns, and spiritual songs to your God. See, it's not speaking about singing as an activity here. It's speaking about singing as an expression from the heart. We are telling God how great He is. We are reflecting on what He's done for us and giving Him the praise from our hearts because we are His created beings. He has made us. His Word dwells in us. We can't help but praise His name. Just look at that last part of that verse. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You see, if we have the peace of God in our hearts, if we are thankful to Him, then as we teach and admonish each other using His word, what does that mean? Teaching is positively stating, this is what God's word says. Admonishing is, it is... These are the warnings that God gives in His Word. Listen to them. You can't have one without the other. You must use all the wisdom of God's Word. If you have all the wisdom of God's Word in you, then thankfully you will give Him praise. Those are the instructions to us. So what do we do with this? Here's the application. You've noticed I haven't got to verse 17 yet. There's the so what of this whole passage. Verse 17, let's read it together. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. There's the summary statement. So with everything that's come before, your new nature that's been given to you, and you are to be holy as God is holy, and He will help you in that putting aside the effects of the old nature in you, putting those sins to death, as you experience unity in the church, as you give to each other, as you show patience, humility, meekness, kindness, and patience towards each other. 
you will see in whatever you do, if you do it unto the Lord, because that's what that phrase means, if you do it unto the Lord, then you will be thankful and you will be obeying God. That's what this verse is saying. Whatever you do, there's no exclusion there. In word or deed, there's no escape clause there. Do what everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, the name of the Lord Jesus, that phrase, is not a magic phrase. That's also overused by many. In the name of Jesus I cast out. Now, be careful of that. We know the authority that goes with those words, right? But we aren't to use it as a magic formula. Rather, says this phrase here, do everything unto Jesus in the name of Jesus. Give it to him. And then you will see the power of God at work. Don't use his name as a magic formula. That's not what it's saying. So in everything you do, do it all in the name of Jesus Christ. And if you're doing it unto Jesus Christ, it means you can't be sinning and wanting to do that to Jesus. Because there's a contradiction. And it keeps us from sin. And if you do that, then give thanks to the Father through Christ. And there's the final key. Nothing we do, nothing I try and put out, put on, nothing I try and put off, I can do if it isn't through Christ Jesus and Christ who is in me. Everything. Now, you want to see how challenging this week's going to be? We have to have tea straight afterwards, and then we're going to leave the service. We're going to go out into the community. And Scripture says to us, in everything you do, do it all to Jesus. Now, if that doesn't regulate how we live and determine how I live before the Lord, nothing ever will. Lord, do your work among your people, including me, I pray. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, help us. We are weak, but you are strong. Where we falter and fall down, Lord, give us the strength again to get up and to allow your spirit to keep on changing our lives so that in everything we do we will become more Christ-like so that our walk will become a Christ follower's walk we want to be more like you Jesus Christ help us and Lord I pray for any here who do not yet know Jesus Christ as their own saviour who still hold on to the old nature with all those habits and sins which pile up before your holy throne. May they meet the holy God today, you, Lord Jesus. And may they bend the knee to you and ask you to take away their old natures and to give them a new nature fit for your kingdom. Do your work among us, we pray. And through your Spirit, Help us to do the work you've set before us in this week, in this community, for the sake of your kingdom and your name, Jesus Christ. Amen.